Good morning. Welcome again. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. If you're using one of the blue Bibles, it's page 811. We're going to do another sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, if you are really awake and paying attention, you maybe noticed that uh, there's no line at the end of the Lord's Prayer about the kingdom and the power and the glory. I can explain more to you later. The short answer is that the best and the earliest manuscripts of Matthew don't have that line in it. It's probably not original to what Jesus said, uh, but it's pulled from other places in the Bible. It's entirely true, and we continue to pray it during our liturgy, during our worship, uh, in continuity and respect and tradition for what the church has been doing for thousands of years. Ask me more later if you want to talk about that. Matthew chapter 6. We'll start at verse 9. I'll read through verse 18. Page 811. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses... Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Pray short like Martin Luther told us to. Father, we desperately need to understand your word because we desperately need to pray better and more. So help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing this morning learning about uh, Jesus and what he wants to teach us about prayer right here at the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's particularly, this prayer is important. Uh, it's not the only thing we can pray, uh, but it is a great guide for us. And it's a great thing to pray itself for its own sake. Last week we saw that the first half of the Lord's Prayer is pointing us upward. It's teaching us to raise our eyes up to the Father uh, that first half is dominated by the language of you and your, uh, about God's love and care for us as his children. Uh, so that then when we realize who he is and our relationship with him as our father, uh, we therefore desire to ask him to bless his name and his rule and his will. That was that first half of the prayer. But then you have this phrase in verse 10 that kind of transition us where we pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're shifting there. Uh, our eyes of prayer are moving from upward. Now they're moving to outward and inward. We're going from up to down, so to speak, from heaven to earth. Jesus is teaching us that the Father wants us to bring him the concerns of our lives down here, so to speak. Uh, these second, the second set of requests about life here on earth, they are secondary to the first set of requests that we prayed about last week. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they're optional. 
It doesn't mean they're unimportant or that God doesn't really care that much about them. If we really know God as our Father, we're going to know that He loves us so much that He wants to and He will meet us in the midst of the struggles and the pains of this world. And so we will learn more and more to pray all the kinds of prayers that Jesus teaches us to pray. Uh, The upward prayers, but also the outward prayers and the inward prayers. So the first thing Jesus teaches us now as we turn our prayer focus from heaven to earth, he teaches us to pray this, please provide. He teaches us, please provide. That's verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. It's a phrase that means something like this. Give us the bread that we need for the day that's coming. So if you pray this in the morning, that's a way of praying. For pray, I pray for my bread that I'm going to need to eat today. If you're praying this in the evening when you go to bed, you're praying, God, please provide the food that I'm going to need tomorrow when I wake up. It's an expression of total dependence on God for life and sustenance, for health and wealth. Uh, Something we often like to forget about ourselves is that we are creatures. And as creatures, we're needy. We're dependent. We need food. We need sleep. We need money. We need clothes. We need housing. And so our Father, Jesus is teaching us that our Father in heaven is not so spiritual and so transcendent and lofty that he's therefore uninterested in giving us all these things. He's not offended when we ask for them. Jesus is saying that the Father wants us to be constantly asking for these very earthly, daily kinds of things. But of course, we are living in one of the wealthiest societies in human history. How many of us here today have ever really had to pray this prayer the way that most Christians have prayed it in history and the way that many, many Christians are praying it today. I don't have enough food to get through the day. I don't know where it's going to come from. Please give it to me. Very few of us have ever really had to live that close to the edge of starvation. What does it mean in Austin, Texas... 2022 to pray for our daily bread we have heb we have 401ks we have deep chest freezers full of deer other things we have hospitals and medicines that kings and queens of our ancestors could never have imagined we have extra headphones extra cars extra lap dogs we still, in spite of all those things, we still need to be praying this prayer. And we need to believe that we need to be praying this prayer. We should not just be mouthing it. We really need to mean it. Even if God has blessed us with a lot of wealth, we have to remember that we are just as dependent on Him as the world's poorest orphan. Everything we have is from God. And our ability and our strength and our, to enjoy them are also from Him. Jesus is frequently warning about the danger of wealth. Not because there's something wrong or icky about money or wealth in itself, but because of the way it deceives you and makes you think that you don't really need God anymore. 
that you can take care of yourself, that you've somehow arrived, that you're going to be safe now. Jesus says, be careful. We stop thinking that we need to pray for our daily bread. Even if you have a stable and a secure job, even if you have an intellect or a skill set that nobody else in the world does, even then you are still totally dependent on the Father to sustain you. Some of us here this morning have learned this the hard way. Uh, Some of us have had to learn to really pray for their daily bread, almost certainly because you have experienced suffering and loss and danger, and you have seen in the past how God continued to provide for you when you had no idea how you were going to survive. You had no idea where the money was going to come from, where the food was going to come from. Some of you know exactly what that's like. The point is this, your health, if you have your health, your mind, if you have your mind, your bank account, if there's something in it, all of those things, even if you have them, they are still totally contingent upon God's constant care, God's constantly keeping them going. God doesn't just kind of wind us up like a robot or a top and then kind of let us go on our own to make money or do whatever. God is always providing for us. He's always sustaining us. Do you know that today? Do you pray like that? Do you thank God for what you have? Do you recognize it as his gift? Do you feel your dependence upon him to continue to sustain you and nourish you and your family? So even we today, even us in Austin, Texas, even we should still be praying that God would provide our daily bread. Most of the time, he's doing this through work, through us having vocations and jobs and callings in the world. Uh, So when we pray this prayer, in a lot of ways, we're praying that God would bless our jobs, that God would bless our work in the world. We were just talking about this this morning in the men's study about how uh, many of us don't think to pray for our jobs. We think God doesn't really care about it. But when you pray, give us this day our daily bread, that's really a way uh, that you are praying for your work. You should be praying for your work. You should be praying that God would provide for you and other people through it. God is the one who ultimately provides for us, but he does give us what we need. And those things really do become ours. And so in one sense, let me finish my thought before you get offended by what I'm about to say. I'm going to give you two senses. In one sense, we don't pray for other people's bread. We should not be greedy or lazy or envious with regards to what other people have, what we wish we could have, what they can produce. But in another sense... We should be praying for other people's bread. Uh, Not that we pray for their bread so that I can have it, but we pray for their bread so that they can have it. We pray for the poor and for the hungry and for the homeless and for the unemployed and for the depressed. And we particularly pray for fellow Christians. We are praying for our bread. We're praying as a family. Remember we talked about this last week. We're always praying as a community. We're praying that God would take care of us, that God would take care of them, even those that we don't know, that we're never going to meet before we get to heaven. Uh, We should praise God a lot more than we do that extreme poverty has declined rapidly around the world in recent decades. But of course, there is still great poverty all over the world. There's great poverty in this country. Uh, Much of it has been worsened in the last couple years after many years of getting better through these well-intentioned policies of lockdowns and money printing. Things are getting much harder for a lot of people around the world, and we should be praying for them. And oftentimes, 
you, God makes you the answer to your own prayers. When you pray for the poor, when you pray for other people who have needs, uh, God sometimes is also nudging you saying, that's great, you're praying for that. How about you answer it for yourself? This is also a way of encouraging us to become more generous towards people around us who are in need. So that's the first request. Please provide. Give us this day our daily bread. The second request is this. Please forgive. Please forgive. Jesus is using the financial language as he often does. Jesus seems to have a a place in his heart for businessmen and for accountants and financial people. He's using the financial language of debt. We say to God, please forgive us our debts. It's a metaphor for how our sins have ruined our relationship with God. A metaphor for our total powerlessness to do anything about it. In a way, Jesus is saying that by rebelling against God, by rejecting his wise rule over our lives, we have maxed out the cosmic credit card with no plan, no ability to pay it off. The interest is accruing against us every single day, digging ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper. We cannot pay God. We have no collateral to offer him. There's no one except him who can pay off the debt. And forgiving debts, of course, is profoundly costly. Jesus sacrificed his own life, the Bible says, as a payment, a ransom. Jesus was suffering hellish misery on the cross. The father, too, was suffering in a way. He gave up his only son for us. The unfathomable debt of our sin was paid by Jesus. This is how and why God can forgive us. Even as Christians, we continue to sin every day, and so Jesus is teaching us, even as Christians, to keep asking for forgiveness. This should be a normal part of our prayer lives. But a lot of people think that God can kind of just shrug off their sin. A lot of people think that it's just kind of God's job to let things slide, that he kind of owes us because we think we're not so bad. Uh, We mean pretty well. We're not as bad as those people over there. But we need to understand that the whole reason we need to ask for forgiveness is because forgiveness is our only hope. We can't get it for ourselves. We can't earn it for ourselves. We don't deserve it for ourselves. This is a prayer of pleading for mercy, a prayer of of total lack, of total bankruptcy. A lot of Christians uh, get very comfortable. They get very complacent with the idea of God's mercy and the idea of God's grace. We can so easily lose the wonder and the shock of God's forgiveness. We can just take it for granted so easily. Uh, is it any wonder that so many Christians are so blasé about the gospel? That so many Christians in our society squirm at the idea of God's wrath, but they shrug their shoulders at the idea of God's mercy? Like, yeah, whatever. He's merciful. That's what he's supposed to do. We need to recapture how shocking and extravagant, even offensive it is, that God would actually forgive people like you and me. The reason, one of the reasons, one of the main reasons, I think, that so many people don't really believe in hell is the same reason that so many people don't believe in God's grace. They think God 
saves nice people. Nice people like me. We earn it. We deserve it. But as you look at the ministry of Jesus, you read the Gospels. You read about Paul and his ministry in the book of Acts. Uh, You read his letters. One of the things you see over and over and over again is how horrified people are when they start going around doing their thing. People are shocked. They can't believe the kinds of people that they're hanging around with. They can't believe the ways that they talk about and they show God's grace. Their attitude, their constant response to the apostles and to Jesus through the whole New Testament is something like this. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You can't just tell people they're forgiven. God could not possibly accept people apart from what they've done, particularly those kind of people. They say, don't you know that talking so much about forgiveness and mercy and grace is going to make people irresponsible and lazy? Don't you know how hard I've worked, how responsible I've been, how pious I am? I deserve it. I'm a nice person. They don't deserve it. Constant shock and offensiveness and offendedness around Jesus and the apostles. We need God's forgiveness. It's a shocking thing that we can ask for it and we can expect it and be sure of it because we've totaled the lives and the gifts and the relationships that God's given us. We've taken them and we've driven them off the bridge, off of a cliff, destroyed everything. And then we turn around and we have the temerity to say to him, please let it slide. Please forgive me. And God says, yeah, okay, I'll forgive you. I love to forgive you. It's a shock. God's happy to give us his mercy. He sent his own son to secure it for us. And so that should make you profoundly joyful as a Christian, even though you are continuing to see and express your need for God's forgiveness. Those things are not uh, working against each other. Those things go together. Recognizing the depth of your sin is in many ways the key to seeing how wonderful and how joyful it is to be accepted as his child. It's in this shocked and joyful awareness of our desperate need for God's forgiveness that Jesus says you're actually able to forgive other people. One of the deepest, most difficult problems that people struggle with. How do you forgive people who have wronged you? How do you talk to people who have offended you, who have deeply offended you, who have deeply wronged you? Jesus is teaching us, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. They come together. It's one of the more common themes in his teaching. He's always talking about this. You need to forgive others. You need to forgive others. You need to forgive others. Do you know why? Because God's forgiven you. He's always saying this. Jesus is going to have a lot more to say about forgiveness and conflict. Uh, But let me first say what he's not saying. Jesus is not saying that us forgiving other people somehow uh, makes God willing or able to forgive us as a response. Like God says, okay, well, well, you need to pay me with some forgiveness towards your mom or your dad or whoever, and then maybe I'll start thinking about whether or not I'm going to forgive you and be nice to you. That's not what Jesus is saying. We forgive others because God has forgiven us. Somebody who refuses to forgive somebody who clings to their bitterness and their resentment, somebody who refuses to talk to somebody who has offended them, somebody who's nursing their grudges and building up a stockpile of their hurts so that they can use it as ammunition in their next argument with their wife. Those kind of people are showing that they don't really understand that God has forgiven us our sins and our offenses. They don't really understand that the things that we've done against God 
are vastly more serious and vastly deeper than anything that anybody could ever do against us. A refusal to forgive, a refusal to reconcile with other people betrays a heart that has never really grasped how good the good news of Jesus really is. The good news that Jesus died in our place before we even asked for it, before we could even possibly start to deserve it. The church should be, the church must be a community of peace and reconciliation and forgiveness. How tragic that churches are so often known, not without reason, for being places of bitterness and pettiness. Uh, I visited a church in Scotland for a couple months where the pastor and the music minister uh, hated each other so much they didn't talk to each other for like eight years. They planned all the services by writing letters to each other because they couldn't stand to be in each other's presence. What a joke. What a mockery of who Jesus is and what he's done. Uh, I'm also going to say that when you forgive other people, here's also what it doesn't mean. Forgiving other people also does not mean forgetting about what happened, like, oh, I don't know, I don't remember this at all. It doesn't mean that you trust somebody like nothing ever happened. It doesn't mean there's no accountability or no consequences. It doesn't mean you don't call the police. It doesn't even necessarily mean that there is reconciliation in terms of a restored, normal relationship. Uh, We always can and must foster an attitude and a posture of forgiveness. And and part of how we do this is regularly praying for God to help us and praying that God would teach us to forgive these people. Uh, But sometimes reconciliation itself, restoration in the relationship, sometimes that can't happen. Sometimes somebody's dead. Sometimes they've disappeared. Sometimes they've moved to a different part of the world. Sometimes they won't talk to us. Sometimes when you do talk to them, they won't repent. In all those cases, you can't really fully be reconciled to somebody. You can't be fully restored in relationship to them. And Jesus is not expecting that of us. But no matter the case, no matter how they're responding or if they're alive or if they're dead or if you can talk to them or what it is, in any case, Jesus is saying you must always have this posture and this attitude and this prayerfulness towards forgiveness. Forgiveness means release. It means letting go of bitterness and revenge and contempt. It means you're not going to fixate anymore on the offense or on throwing pity parties for yourself. It's radical stuff. I mean, in a lot of ways, we kind of throw around, oh, yeah, yeah, love, 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 peace and forgiveness. Isn't this great? But I mean, when you stop and think about it, this is really radical stuff. We're living in a society and a culture that revolves around stoking outrage and envy, a world that is increasingly focused on magnifying and avenging some kinds of oppression and victimization, some of it real, some of it perceived. Positively, forgiveness means moving more and more towards love. Love does not mean uh, making people feel good. It doesn't mean doing what people want. It doesn't mean saying what they want. Uh, But it means moving towards pity, towards compassion, towards genuine concern, even when somebody has deeply wronged you. Genuine concern that they would somehow one day experience the abundant life, the abundant life of mercy that only the Father can give them. Forgiveness is really hard. We have to continually work at it. It's like bread. I think this is why Jesus puts them so close together. Uh, Just like you need bread all the time, Jesus is saying, you need forgiveness all the time and you need to be working at forgiving other people all the time. 
To live in a life of strife uh, and hostility and bitterness is going to destroy you. It's going to eat you up from the inside, just like if you stopped eating. Jesus is teaching us, be praying for this all the time. Uh, Who do you need to be forgiving? Uh, Who can you start integrating into your prayer life? Lord, please help me to forgive so-and-so for what they've done. Uh, Sometimes you'll think you've kind of done it, you've forgiven somebody, and you realize later, I I really haven't. Or something reminds me what they did. You need to keep praying for it. So Jesus teaches us, please provide, please forgive, and now please protect. Please protect. Verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, This is not saying that God somehow forces us or causes us like a puppet master to fall into sin. Uh, God is entirely good. There's no evil in him or from him. The letter from James the Apostle says that God himself tempts nobody. Uh, nobody gets to pull the excuse, well, God made me do it, or you know, the devil made me do it, or something like that. Uh, the Greek word here for temptation can also be translated as trial or testing. And so there's a sense in which when you pray this prayer, you are praying and asking God to keep you from terrible and difficult situations that might stir up your sinful desires to forget about God or to become begrudging against him, or to renounce him even. But at the same time, we still do confess this great mystery that God does rule over all things, not just most things. That in a sense, God allows evil and sin to happen for his own mysterious purposes. The prayer that God would lead us not into temptation is the flip side of the prayer that he would deliver us from evil. They go together. You can't have one without the other. Earlier in Matthew, we heard that the Holy Spirit had led Jesus into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. God was behind Jesus going into a place of temptation. But he was also delivered from that evil. He was delivered from the evil one. And so when we pray this request, we're not only praying it in uh, uh, fellowship with Jesus, who himself was tempted, who himself uh, had to rely on God to deliver him from it. When we pray this request, we're also confessing our own spiritual and moral weakness. We are confessing our inability to power through temptation and evil and suffering on our own. Uh, no Christian should be praying like a macho hero. It's like, bring it on. I, I want to do it. I'm going to see if I can handle this. Uh, I knew a guy once who thought, uh, I'm not going to say it, never mind. Ask me later. It's not good to say in front of kids. <laughs> he thought he should do something that you shouldn't be doing because he thought he was strong enough. Uh, anyways, when we pray this, we are admitting our need for God to rescue us. We're admitting our need for God to sustain us and to protect us, we are acknowledging when we pray this that there's some situations that would be just too overwhelming for me. Uh, no matter how good my intentions are, no matter how strong my willpower might be. But we're also acknowledging that when God does bring us into hard places, even evil places, like Jesus in the wilderness, we're admitting that we need God to deliver us from them. We cannot rescue ourselves from the evil of this world or even from the evil of our own hearts. 
The Lord's Prayer ends on a note of weakness. We need God to protect us and to rescue us. It's very different than the way the world views humanity, that we kind of have this inherent power to just do about anything as long as we try hard enough, as long as we work hard enough, as long as we have enough money or education, as long as we have the right leaders. Uh, it's also very different than the way the world views itself as kind of a, 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 whole, a whole thing, uh, that progress is just kind of inevitable, that it's just kind of the way things are, that things are going to keep getting better and better and better. There's something inherently good about us uh, and our devices and our leaders, uh, that our institutions are just going to keep getting better. Uh, all these things, um, it's very different than what Jesus is saying here, than what's assumed behind this prayer, that we would be delivered from evil. Uh, a lot of times, I mean, evil shows up in some ways in our uh, society, in the way we talk, mainly in terms of politics. Those people are evil. If those evil people get into power, then lots of evil things are going to happen. But in a lot of ways, evil has kind of uh, fallen out of the way that people approach the world. Uh, we think about uh, problems in terms of technology, uh, people can just kind of fix things. Uh, we've lost this sense of darkness uh, that Jesus is, is teaching us is real, that the world is an evil place, uh, that we need to be delivered from it. The Lord's Prayer, along with the rest of Scripture in line with it, is somberly admitting how frail and weak and evil we really are. We're not spiritual heroes. Uh, we don't just need God's advice or God's assistance. We need nothing less than deliverance. Deliver us from evil. Do you pray that way? Do you feel the powerlessness of yourself and your abilities in the face of this world, in the face of your own heart? That's the rest of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but then Jesus gives this explanatory note that we talked about in verses 14 and 15 about how important it is to forgive other people. This is the one thing in the prayer that Jesus thinks is so important. He says, I'm going to tell you more about this part. We need to really talk about forgiveness. But then you also have this note on fasting that's really similar to what he warned about charity and about prayer. Uh, when you fast, he says, don't go around like these religious hypocrites who show off that they're fasting. Uh, but instead, when you fast, just look normal. Just act normal uh, because your father knows what you need. Your father sees you and your father is going to one day reward you for these things that you're giving up. Uh, here's another story about my uh, days in college. Uh, don't be like me. When I was a college student, I just had stumbled across fasting and thought, wow, that sounds really cool. Sounds really spiritual. Sounds like that's for super Christians. I'm going to start fasting. And so I started doing it. And then uh, I was one time with a group of friends and I casually dropped something like, oh, no, sorry, I can't have any of those Cheetos because actually I'm fasting right now. And uh, there was a girl in the group who immediately said with a smirk on her face, didn't Jesus say that you're not supposed to go around telling people you're fasting? And it was like, oh, yes. I felt really stupid. Fasting uh, is when you go without food for a period of time in order to draw closer to God. The New Testament says very little about it. This is the only place that Jesus teaches about it. Uh, it never is mentioned in any of the letters in the New Testament. Uh, I don't think it has the, quite the same level as importance or necessity as practices like generosity and worship and prayer. Uh, Christians, I think in a lot of ways, may or may not choose to fast, uh, but probably they should. 
uh, probably Christians in our world, surrounded by affluence, um, very little that we need to stress about in terms of what we need materially, probably we should, uh, at least sometimes. Jesus here is assuming, apparently, that Christians are going to be fasting. He says, when you fast, here's how you do it. Uh, I know some people talk in our world about fasting like it's a dietary thing, uh, like it's a health thing. Maybe it's good for you. I don't know. Uh, But that's not really what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, This is a spiritual discipline by means of physical renunciation. It comes right on his teaching on prayer because fasting is so closely tied to prayer. It's really a way to help you pray. When you give up food for whatever period of time you're going to do it for, and if you're going to start out, you've never done this before, I would strongly encourage you to start out very small. Uh, Be careful. Uh, But when you do that, uh, you very quickly feel your hunger. And this gnawing sense of lack is a great reminder to pray. It also gives you more time to pray. As Jesus says here, fasting, like other spiritual disciplines, has a danger though. It can become a self-righteous show. But when it's done rightly for God and for God alone, it can be a powerful reinforcement, a powerful motivation for deeper prayer. Uh, First, when you fast, it expresses your dependence on God. For all things, physical and spiritual. It's a way of underscoring the prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Second, fasting expresses sorrow. In the Old Testament especially, fasting was something you would do in times of great personal loss or great social and national calamity. It was an expression of grief and lament. Today, fasting can be an expression of sorrow over our own sin, over the state of our world, the state of the church. It's a way of underscoring the prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And third, fasting expresses our weakness. Without food, you become acutely aware of how frail and needy you really are. It's a way of underscoring the prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The Lord's Prayer is full of this note, this tone of dependence, so different uh, than the way we often like to think of ourselves, that I can kind of do anything, I'm independent, Uh, I've kind of thought of all of my own ideas, and I've brought myself all my own success, and my kids are so wonderful because I'm such a smart parent. Uh, But the whole Lord's Prayer says, you're dependent, you're dependent, you're dependent. It ends with weakness, but it begins with a father, our father. Prayer is communicating with God as our Father, with us as His children. And so this life and this posture and this atmosphere of childlike dependence is the heart of prayer. As beloved children of the Father, we long for His name to be treated with reverence. We yearn for His kingdom to come. We want His will to be done. But also, as His beloved children, we know that He is profoundly concerned for our creaturely needs here on earth to sustain us with the physical necessities of this life to mercifully grant us forgiveness and thereby to empower us to forgive other people and live at peace with them and also to rescue us from evil with power and might and so why wouldn't we ask him for those things let's pray father give us all these things We depend on you for your kingdom to come. We depend on you for your will to be done. We even depend on you uh, 
uh, for our breakfast that we had this morning, for our lunch that we're about to eat. Uh, most of us have you know, enough money in our bank accounts to pay for lunch. Uh, but even then, we totally depend on you. Help us to remember that. We depend on you for our relationships and for their peace. Help us to be a forgiving people, a peaceful people, uh, knowing and rejoicing that you've made peace with us. And Father, we depend on you to deliver us from the evil of this world, so overwhelming and so depressing in so many ways. Uh, teach us to grieve the evil of this world, but most of all, give us confidence that you see it, you are fighting it, and you will destroy it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.